Welcome back to Mojo Moments. I'm your host, Dane Calder. I'm with my buddy, Mark Dolinsky. What's up, buddy? Glad to be back for another episode. Uh, okay, so do you know who we have on today? We have Hilton Barber on, a marketing and communication strategist. You were supposed to pretend you didn't know. Oh, I don't know. Who is it? <laughs> Hilton Barber. Oh, now, what why are we having him on? It's been one year, my friend, one year, roughly. That we've been in pandemic lockdown, people sent home from their offices, those who work in offices and in, in agencies and places where they people get together. And the whole mojo of offices has been centered around people getting together and all that stuff. And then we start asking ourselves, post-pandemic, are people going to come back to the office? And we don't know. Some will, some won't. So, you know, it's starting to raise a question, what is corporate culture? Like, how do you get mojo in a company and capture that cultural dynamics? And this is not an HR thing. I think this is a deeper thing. Like a corporate culture is real. You can feel it, taste it. It's out there. And we've been riffing on that uh, offline. And, you know, like what about our own company culture? So we said, let's bring in a guy who is obsessed with this. So Hilton Barber, who we've already said is going to be on. So we already preempted that. Uh, so that's who we're having on to talk to us about his passion, obsession, his expertise. Give give us a little lowdown. What is what is his bio in a nutshell? So he's a marketing communication specialist by trade. That's what he does. He he kind of focuses on change management, um, and he's got 15 years of experience working with all sorts of clients. You know, every sort of fee- field you can imagine, from consumer goods to telecommunications, automobile, all of that. Like he's worked with Coca Cola, IBM. Shaw, Autodesk, PricewaterhouseCooper, even uh, Enron, which is kind of fun. We should maybe talk to him about that. That's a blast from the past. So yeah, so a lot of experience uh, on that front, and he definitely is excited to uh, share his insights on the old corporate culture angle. So uh, here he is, Hilton Barber. So welcome, welcome, Hilton. Welcome aboard our show. Well, listen, it's a delight to see you and and Mark this afternoon. This is the Rush Limbaugh of podcasts, obviously. That raw, that unfiltered. That dead. No, I'm I'm saying that catalytic. This is not how you win us over. This is not how we're starting our podcast. Okay. Okay. You may regret the decision not to edit the heck out of these yeah. conversations. <laughs> so, look, hey, welcome to, to Mojo Moments, man. Let me ask you one question. Why do you have a toucan? Like, are you like saving on heating bills? What's going on over there? Where are you? I am in the home office in Toronto. It is a balmy minus three today. And so, it- for the inner African who's been here 20 years, I still freeze my butt off every Canadian winter. Now, I, I appreciate I'm talking to two Montrealers who go <laughs> at minus five. I'm still outside in shorts and a T-shirt. So Absolutely. I apologize for that. But, uh, yeah, the toque. Yeah, but you're inside, as I can see, unless you've mm-hmm. turned your heat off. I'm doing everything to go carbon neutral. Good so, boy. Good boy. <laughs> I'd like to hear that. I, I understand how important it is for us to get back to our 2020 uh, Paris Accord targets. I'm doing my thing as a proud Canadian. Yeah, and then you'll have to reverse time. But that's a whole other podcast. That's our next (laughs) podcast, isn't it? So Mark did this beautiful, like, you should have been there. I think it felt like we're at some graduation ceremony. He did this whole intro on you. Um, But in a nutshell, what we take away is you, you started your career uh, in this whole branding communication world. And I guess the real question to warm things up here is, is Hilton Barber your real name or did you rename kind of like Sting or Jay-Z or whatever? Did you say, I'm going to this sector of the world and I'm going to give myself the name that will stand out? Well, I could lie to you and say it was something deeply a strategic decision on my part, but it absolutely wasn't. My first name is from 
a dear friend of my father's. And uh, my last name is just the family name. But you're right. I can't think of a more spectacular collection of names for somebody in marketing and communication. And if you're going to indulge me for a moment, I did have a, a client who shall remain nameless for the moment, who on one of the very first calls that I had with him said, that's an incredible name. And you come from a part of the world that I don't recognize. Is this a sort of cultural thing? And I said, eh, absolutely it is. You know, we're named after the things our parents covet <laughs> uh, and admire. And uh, it's kind of intriguing because my middle name is also because of my marketing background, something my parents admired deeply as well. So my middle name is Nike. So my full name is Hilton Nike Barber, which they promptly told a couple of colleagues. And I forgot all about it until about six months later, I was talking to an extended part of their team and they said, I understand you've got a very interesting middle name. And I had a moment and I said, my middle name is Robert. <laughs> boring. And they said, oh, sorry, I thought your middle name was Nike. <laughs> so again, it's one of those things where, unfortunately, whatever people tell you, an accent is a wonderful tool. It is like every superpower, one that comes with great responsibility. And you should only use it in, in moments where you understand the implications of what your accent can do. So. I learned a very valuable lesson that day. So, so Mark, no middle joke uh, questions or uh, concepts are Noted. okay. We're not going but down. It's so the true. It's so true about the accent because my parents both came from the UK, and whatever they say just sounds so much more, you know, authoritative. Doesn't matter what it is. It's like, oh no, that sounds probably right. Whatever it is, it's absolutely true. In our trade, you always want your strategist to be from somewhere else. <laughs> They always sound smarter. Exactly. And, and Mark, unfortunately, though, that perception skips a generation because my... Absolutely. My, no, well, my two, <laughs> my two teenage daughters look at me and they go, I don't understand what you're saying, but it makes no sense at all. And therefore, we're not going to follow whatever instructions you just gave us. So, yeah, yeah but that's right. not accent. That's just you being a dad, man. Like that's Amen. Amen, brother. So let's get back on our big theme here, which is we're here to talk about, not about branding, not about communication, about Hilton. About, yes, no. We're here to talk about corporate culture. Like how does a guy go from... Doing ads, we'll just call it what it is, to I'm going to be a corporate culture guru. What happened? Well, um, again, I'd love to give you a, a deeply romantic story, but it, it really, for me, it started, I think, like anybody who works in the culture space or has a deep uh, belief and love for culture. I had my own personal experiences. I think we've all worked inside organizations as individuals where we've thought, I can really thrive here. I know what the organization's intent is. I know my contribution. I have clarity on what I do and what my contribution can do to accelerate where the organization is going. Now, I've worked in some places where I felt that very deeply from my colleagues, from my bosses, from the environment I was in. Equally, I've worked in some places where... At 9.15 in the morning, I was wondering if I could leave. You know, it was, I don't know what I'm doing here. I don't know what my contribution is. I have no, I have no understanding of the strategic direction of this organization. So there was that component, my own deeply personal and individual experiences. But as a marketing person, I also saw that time and again in the clients that, that we work with, that you often find yourself in these situations where, as agency people, you bring provocative, you know, insightful ideas to an organization. And one of the sort of first reactions across the table is, wait, you want us to deploy that and execute that here? Do you not understand that our sales and marketing team are in violent disagreement? Do you, you don't understand that perhaps what happens at store operational level is, Never going to allow this to happen, or it's going to be an uphill battle to happen. So I saw that uh, several times in my career, 
But in two particular cases, I think it really crystallized for me. At one stage during my time at Ogilvy, which was a great personal experience for me, I went to New York to run the Enron business. So for people of a certain age listening to this podcast, you can appreciate how this guy goes to New York from Toronto all bright-eyed to work on this incredible organization that at the time, luminary management consultants like Gary Hamill were saying, Enron is going to be the future of how business is going to be run. And less than a year later, I'm on a plane back to Toronto because to paraphrase the Enron client at the time, they said, we need lawyers more than we need ad agencies. Yeah. You know, and I, need, I needn't <laughs> tell you know people listening to this podcast what what the Enron story was. And well, for the youth, for the, all our youthful ones out there, Enron was a big scam, and there's a lot of executives that ended up in jail. So th- that's yeah. all you need to know. <laughs> and and but then you know on the book on the bookshelf behind me is one of my most treasured artifacts. It's the Enron employee handbook. Oh man, okay. I regularly bring that out like a little culture totem and rub it for good luck to go, don't do anything that's in here. If you do the exact opposite, you should be in a good place. Or at least not in jail. Well, exactly. You know, if you want to remain outside of a a cell, do not do anything that this book might suggest. So that was one example and obviously a very visceral one. Um, Another example, several years later when I was working in the UK, went up to Helsinki with a, with my boss at the time, and he held up in this meeting we had with about 30 engineers, the very first iPhone. And he said, this is going to be the future of mobile telephony. And in that, in that wonderful way that only the Finns can do, they looked at both of us as if we'd grown three heads. And I said, what does that music company know about mobile telephony? But we were sitting inside the Nokia worldwide headquarters in Espoo. You know, and the and the point being is an organization of Nokia's size and heft and intelligence. This wasn't a this wasn't a startup. This was an organization with over 80% of global mobile penetration. There wasn't a fact about mobile telephony they didn't have. There wasn't a piece of innovation they hadn't already considered. And in many cases, already built themselves. They were the epitome of cell phones, man. 100%. But again, in the spirit of culture, I mean, culture creates a force field. And often it can create enormous blind spots for organizations. And again, this is, this is not to knock the incredibly smart and intelligent and passionate people I met at Nokia. Some remain lifelong friends, but the culture of the organization couldn't comprehend that a guy in a black turtleneck in Cupertino was going to come up with the thing that was going to turn them from a global mobile force into a sort of line item on a Microsoft balance sheet. Mm -hmm. Because two years later, that's what they became. So again, you know, it's, For me, the fascination as a marketing person for culture is I don't see and I genuinely don't believe that any organization has a more compelling, competitive advantage than their culture. And if you've got a culture that's well aligned to your strategy, you can be invincible but if your culture and your strategy react loggerheads, it can be the biggest impediment to your success on the planet. So for me, perhaps quite simplistically as a marketer, I go, this is something that's a sustainable competitive advantage. It can't be copied. It can't be mimicked. It can't be stolen. It can't be borrowed. Why wouldn't I, as a marketing guy, throw myself into that? Because everything else has got a whole bunch of issues about ownership and being able to leverage that competitive advantage. So for me, it was a natural intersection. Um, And I'll say truth be told, it's an incredibly fascinating topic. 
and even more fascinating in the world we live in today, as organizations are distributed and workforces are sitting at home wearing wonderful toques on their head. (laughs) Think about what does culture look like in today's environment? For me, that makes it even more fascinating um, and just a wonderful, wonderful topic. Well, yeah, it sort of dovetails nicely into something we were curious about is, you know, now that the physicality of that office is no more, that sense of a, of a corporate culture, what people stand for in a strong corporate identity, it, one assumes it's now more important than ever. Mm-hmm. Oh. And, and how do you see people, you know, embracing that and, and, and getting that across to their people these days? I think one of the very first things, again, is perhaps a recalibration of this culture word. Time and again, when you speak to executives about culture, and even if you're having a sort of beer conversation with your friends, you know, you talk about culture and they go, oh, you mean that that beer cart Friday and, you know, that kumbaya at the at the Christmas party. And- yeah, we have a foosball table. We got plenty of culture. No, we don't. I stole it, man. I brought it. You oh, took yeah. it home, you bastard. <laughs> so that's indicative of the culture. It's any place where Thane can can expense items and then steal them and take them home. <laughs> so no, I think that, that, that's a wonderful representation of, of the Cloud Raker culture. And and I applaud you, Thane, and, and very much look forward to your book and your speaking tour on the topic uh, in the very near future. My kids are happy, okay? They're happy. <laughs> yeah, and, and that's that's wonderful. Um, <laughs> getting back to your question, I think part of it is is because we've done a, a remarkable job of poorly defining what culture really is. You know, there's this sort of default thing of beer card Fridays, foosball tables, vegan muffins, everyone's happy, kumbaya around the campfire. But the truth of the matter is that is an outcome of your culture. That isn't your culture. It's a little bit like saying our objective at this company is profit. Well, no, it's not. Profit is an outcome of running your organization effectively and efficiently. If you have a culture that's fun and happy, hooray, congratulations. But I'll take a page from a dear friend called Stan Slap, who is probably one of the most outspoken people in the culture space worldwide. And he says, the definition of the culture you seek is a committed culture. Are your people committed to the successful outcome of your business? Do they put their entire energy beyond just the financial rewards that you give them, beyond the intellectual rewards you give them, as we do in the agency world, where we give them funky little problems to solve and they go, oh, my brain is on fire. Thank you. I can be a creative person here. Thank you. Do we provide them an environment where they say, you know what, I'm going to put my entire effort into this organization. So this organization can succeed. That's commitment. And that's probably, to me, the sign of a culture you want to find, that you want to create. Is your culture committed? And if on the way there, people are fun and happy and hugging each other and high-fiving on the way to work, spectacular. That, to me, is an ancillary benefit, but not your primary objective. So when you see things like, you know, the TV show The Office and Dilbert and all those things that sort of evoke, that's the exact opposite. It's like these environments that are not committed to that. It's it's just you're there, you're punching in, you're punching out. Would you almost see that as like the, the, the flip side of that? The fact that The Office is a 100,000 memes that any of us could sort of open up Google and there's an Office meme. Or for me, office space. Office space, again, is the quintessential, here is an environment where creativity, curiosity, intellectual desire goes to die. (laughs) The environment is there to throttle those things out of you. Independent thinking, autonomy, collaboration. If your environment is throttling that out of your people, that is on you as leadership, you know? So, again, the choice is yours. 
The reality is as much of this is in the control of everybody inside the organization, but obviously disproportionately under the control of management and the managers inside that organization to create that environment of commitment or where commitment is possible versus commitment is throttled out of you by 9.15 on a Monday morning. In the universe of corporate culture, who gets it? Like, who's doing it right? There's a number that, you know, obviously bubbled to the top time and time again. Uh, Zappos is a classic example. Classic Canadian example is Four Seasons. I mean, Izzy Sharp, you know, was one of the earliest uh, people who understood culture as a differentiator. So again, as a marketer, I look at Four Seasons and I go, the golden rule which is an underpinning of the Four Seasons culture, created this environment where if you've ever been to a Four Seasons, you want to move in permanently because you're treated, you're treated at a level that is disproportionate, frankly, to what you pay them. But that's because as an organization, they understand that. I mean, on the other side of the fence, you look at classic examples. Southwest Airlines is legendary for their culture. And I've been fortunate enough to interview some of the people from Southwest to visit Southwest Airlines headquarters in Dallas. And it is, I'm going to say, it's a temple to a commitment to culture. And by their own admission, they'll say, it's harder to get a job at Southwest Airlines than it is to get into Harvard. And this is for an organization that If I'm not mistaken, 80% of that organization is unionized. And I think we can consider our own environment and and perhaps our own municipal government and look at it and go, wow, that's a unionized environment. And they can't seem to get anything done. And this environment in an airline is so heavily unionized and they are still seen as one of the top airlines globally. That's culture at work. That's a committed culture leading to business success and sustained business success. Mm -hmm. It's not an overnight thing. They have been successful for 30 years. That's a remarkable culture, doing what a culture can do when it's committed. And so in the end, when you have like a, a committed, dedicated culture, would you say that that sort of always trends to that that bottom line of it being a successful company, or do you have those times where it's a great it's a great culture, people are committed, and it doesn't work out? That's a very fair question, and yes, I'm sure the history books are probably replete of a number of organizations. The culture was committed, et cetera, et cetera. Look, the reality is, is regardless of how committed the culture is, sometimes the bottom will fall out of your sector, out of your market. I would imagine today, even if you have a committed culture, I probably don't think that if you're in oil and gas, you're you're having as buoyant a time as other sectors. If you're in the hospitality and the tourism industry right now, I think your culture can buttress you against that. I think if you follow Southwest Airlines and Four Seasons, as I do in social media, they're struggling. But I might suggest that when the pandemic is over, they will disproportionately recover faster than any of their other colleagues in the category. And I imagine at the same time, the commitment of that culture will allow them to be more agile, more adaptive, more resilient. Again, these are outcomes of having a committed culture, that they will not struggle to get that from their people, agility, adaptability, resilience, where less committed cultures will be, I'd like you to pay me until we're back to business. I'm at home watching Netflix. Yeah, call me when the hotel's open again. I'll see you then. You know, when you think of, you know, the icons of, take Apple, you know, the, the Steve Jobs sort of zealous pursuit of, of, of winning, I would argue, or high performance. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe that's not the term, but the theme there was one thing. And then you go to a culture, I don't know, you you hear a lot about the Disney culture and 
the Disney way. And then what you're describing is four seasons really about incredible crafting of experiences and treating guests as guests. And so is it really important for an organization to a know what is that theme? What's our theme? And then are you hiring for that or are you, are people buying into it? Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. where's that line? I think a couple of excellent points, Stan, you just made. One, first and foremost, every business needs to start with what is our strategy? How are we going to win in the marketplace? That is a fundamental. Having a committed culture without a strategy is a bunch of people looking for something to do. You know, that isn't useful. It's like, what are we doing around here? I'm committed. I just don't know. Are we rowing? Are we running? Are we jogging? Are we climbing a tree? I have no idea. So strategy has to be number one. And again, classically, strategically, you know, how are we going to win and where are we going to win and with whom? Organizations need to know that. Obviously, in Disney's case, let's be honest, the Disney experience we've all had underlies an incredibly tough and hardworking culture. Disney is not a place where Mickey Mouse brings you a, a hot chocolate when you arrive at that place. It is hardcore success experience driven, driven, driven. By the same token, Apple is as well. By all accounts, Steve Jobs was an absolute maniac, egotistical, eccentric, screaming and shouting, rearranging furniture in meetings, maniac. But that culture that he created was aligned to what is that that we need for our strategy to succeed? I'll give you an example that's that's often sort of much debated amongst folks that, that I chat with. Amazon, arguably the most successful organization in the world, obviously one of a handful that has just exploded during the pandemic. I mean, the, the sheer number of Amazon people who arrive in my neighborhood, I think we could have a block party every week with the amount of Amazon drivers <laughs> that come in. Um, and, you know, let's, let's not forget AWS as part of the Amazon world is 70% of their revenue. Why? Because what do you think every streaming media service sits on right now? So Amazon, remarkable. But as a culture, if you were to look for breadcrumbs in the marketplace, it would be, we don't have air conditioning in our warehouses. We've had a long-going struggle about paying minimum wage, which they took care of a, a year and a half ago. But for the longest time, the Amazon culture was not happy-go-lucky, high-fives. It was ring it out, high-performing, high-pressure, high-stress. But as somebody eloquently said to me once, what is the Amazon strategy? And the Amazon strategy is about faster, cheaper at a moment. You click now, it's at your house tomorrow. That is the personification of efficiency and effectiveness and removing all, I'm going to say, inefficiency from the system. With love and affection, I would suggest human beings are probably the most inefficient part of the supply chain at Amazon. So to some degree, you could say this is a high-performance, high-stress environment because that's the culture we need for our Amazon strategy to succeed. Mm -hmm. So again, you know, strategy has to precede culture. It gives focus, direction, and a place on the map that we're aiming for. Culture needs to be, what do we need to deliver that? So for four seasons, we need people who genuinely believe in the golden rule, that genuinely trust the guest, the guest's happiness, the guest feeling like they are the center of the universe. That is the critical part of their strategy to succeed. That's why their culture drums that into every single member of that organization, from the guy cleaning the toilets to the person at the front desk. They all believe that. So they're all able to deliver that. Mark came across and he shared it with me uh, uh, from your website. 
a picture. Who's the guy in the picture? Yeah, so you're you're about to give a keynote. It's one of the pictures on your site, and it's you in front of Viggo Mortensen as Aragorn from Lord of the Rings. <laughs> and the title is, you know, Building Adaptable Leaders in Times of Ambiguity. So was Aragorn and Viggo Mortensen, was he good in that regard? Was he better as Strider? Like, what are we looking at there? Like, what's happening here? I want, I want to know about this. <laughs> well, truth be told, somebody, somebody had said to me the audience was going to be 350 people, of which 280 were women. And I thought the very first thing I could do is at least start with some eye candy as a distraction to me standing on the stage. I mean, part of, part of any keynote is is knowing where you want your audience's eyeballs to be. And I certainly didn't want them anywhere near me. And I thought this <laughs> wonderful epitome of Norwegian brilliance was infinitely more attractive on a big screen than looking at me. So truth be told, that was the strategic intent behind that choice. <laughs> that was... There we go. Like, there is... Mark, because you were like, I wonder why this is like the... I was like, I'm like Lord of the Rings, but thinking about it, you know, you, you know, he he didn't like showboat at the beginning. He didn't want to let on that he was actually this king, and he was like very warm and welcoming to the hobbits. And is that good for for a leader? But then, like when he needed to lay the hammer, he laid the hammer later. Like, you see, Mark, here's here's the wonderful thing, and thank you because you've just added layers of really <laughs> no, honestly, mate. You've added layers of deep strategic insight into leadership where all I was looking for was a handsome, scantily clad man on a horse that I could distract the audience with. But the points that you've just raised, mate, I think, you know, at, at, at the risk of an inelegant segue back to the environment we live in today, I think there are some great breadcrumbs about that leadership style that you've just talked about that I would suggest to anybody listening to this podcast is probably some stuff we should all take on, which is that notion of vulnerable leadership, that notion of, I think particularly now, that sense of leaders having to be the source of all knowledge to have all the answers. Being infallible. Infallible. Yeah. I, I would suggest there is nobody on this planet, all 7 billion of us, whose crystal ball is working any better than anyone else. And I think for any organization, any leader, whether you're a formal leader with a C in front of your title or an informal leader that people come to for advice, for counsel, for guidance, I think one of the most incredible and important attributes right now is to be able to absorb that vulnerability and say, I don't know, but here's what I'm prepared to do. I'm prepared to lean in. I'm prepared to work with you. I'm prepared to find a way out. But if you're coming to me for all the answers, I'm going to tell you I don't have them. And I think in a world where we've seen decreasing levels of trust, where we've seen decreasing levels of belief in institutions and leadership, I think it's because for many leaders, showing that vulnerability has been tough. In fact, it's been almost impossible for some. And I think we've come to a place in history where people look at leaders like that and they go, I no longer believe in the mythology of the infallible leader. I've actually got more time for the leader who says, I don't know, but let's work it out together. That bond, that ability to bridge and create an environment of trust, I think is a hallmark of leadership that I hope will become more prevalent as we come out of this pandemic and come into a new world of work and ideally a new set of how leaders create these types of cultures where everyone can thrive and succeed. Yeah, you're right. It's been a very interesting period because we like leaders have never been more in our face on a daily basis, I wouldn't say, from American politics to local politics throughout the pandemic. Every other day, there's some sort of demonstration of that leadership one way or another and we've seen every single style from trump's it doesn't matter everything's fine i'm the best to you know here in quebec it's a lot of like i don't know like we're gonna see what happens we're gonna we're gonna put some measures in place maybe they work i don't know we'll get back to you so it's, it's been very fascinating to be able to see all these different leadership styles on display 
One hundred percent. You know, you'd asked earlier about what is the environment for culture in this world where you roll out of bed and you're in your office, literally. You know, and yeah. and I must say, just for the record, for everyone listening, I'm deeply appreciative that neither you or Thane are in your pajamas. So I, I, I oh, yeah. you can only see above here, dude. There's... Oh, yeah, that's a, that's yeah. an excellent point. So, so Mark, <laughs> I, I, I deeply appreciate that you're not in your pajamas, <laughs> and that, that, that Thane is in his branded speedo, uh, speedo, <laughs> as he is for every meeting. So it's very on brand for him. 100%. Thankfully, this is a podcast and, and not a video segment for anybody uh, that's... Listening. Oh, no, no. We share the video, man. We share the video. <laughs> but it's only <laughs> ours, though. You know, Ed, I think for anyone listening, this this is probably the moment that they may want to switch the channel to something before this spins entirely out of control. But, you know, Mark, you, you asked an excellent question earlier, and and I think... There are millions of organizational design psychologists and consultants and you know people like me who who are fascinated by this new dynamic of work and some some questions that arguably will not be solved or even be able to be answered for at least a year or two years, which is are we going back to an office? I mean, one of the fundamental things about about business, you're right, was physical proximity in a place you got up and you went to and you swore bitterly at the commute and you were annoyed and angry when you got home late, but you managed to go out for a really delicious Thai lunch because that restaurant was downstairs and it beat you having to cook your own lunch. How'd you know I had pad Thai today? I, mean, I, th- I think in that description, I, I'm sort of, I, I'm sort of projecting my yeah. inner angst and inner frustration that yeah. I don't know how to make pad thai and, okay. you know, after 12 months of making toasted sandwich, toasted cheese sandwiches, I'm getting a bit bored with my lack of culinary skill. Yeah, but the reality is, and we know this individually, as humans, we do, we thrive on proximity, we thrive on connectedness, we thrive on physicality. And I think, to your point, we thrive in cultures of, cultures are sort of created in the edges as much as they are created formally. They're created in these moments of serendipity, these accidental brushing past a colleague at the water cooler, that five minute of connection after a meeting where you say, Thane, can I buy you a coffee? Can, Can we just talk about the last hour? Can I just buy you a coffee and talk about some of that? That sinew, that connection, those bonding moments, those moments of vulnerability where we're able to talk and and sort of push the edges of what our culture is and what it isn't, that's been really impossible. Truth of the matter is nobody has a, a simple answer to how do you regenerate that with eight hours of Zoom calls. I mean, it's bloody hard, and there is no easy answer. Let me, because it triggers, and I've shared this story in a previous podcast, but years ago I met Malcolm Gladwell, and I was interviewing him, and I asked him, what's the sort of one thing there in the world uh, that we take for granted that actually is magnificent, like adds a lot of utility and usefulness in our lives? And he really paused and said, that's a good question, which is quite impressive that I asked a good question. Anyway, he said at the time, and this goes way back, he goes, libraries, the physical library. Because when you're walking the stacks and you're bumping into books, there's a place for serendipity. And I'm actually connected. That's the thing that we miss in the office, the physical Mm -hmm. office. Because you don't, there's less room for, you know, when you're in this little box of a Zoom call or whatever you're on, you don't have those serendipic moments. And those... No. Those add a lot of spark in a life. The 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 little random things that happen, and even if it's a maybe a crappy commute ride, something may come of that. But when you're just in this mm-hmm. sort of this medium, you might have some funny serendipity things, but it just, just doesn't happen. There's less dimensions taking place for that to happen. And so you're absolutely right, mate. You know, serendipity and spontaneity are two things that have been 
exorcised from eight hours of our day. And again, it, it is those moments. You know, my heart goes out to organizations who've had to hire and onboard people at this time. I mean, a friend a friend on LinkedIn made a remarkable little thing. It was it was both pithy and deeply saddening at the same time. She wrote, I've been at this organization for nine months and I love and adore you all. I just don't know how tall most of you are. <laughs> <laughs> And I, and, I, and I thought, and I mean, that was the reaction that I had. You know, the reaction you two have just had, that was my reaction reading it. No, but it's so incredibly insightful, though, man. Like, like, yeah. And that's exactly right. I mean, it's by the same token, you don't know how tall your colleagues are. Now, you also, you know, you also don't know if their kids are struggling at school or if they are having a good day, or if heaven forbid they're a Habs fan. I mean, these are remarkably strange people. That you, the South African, knows yeah, what know, a Habs is. is. I, Look I at you. Look at you being all culturally connected well, here. You know, I, I, I also know that if I made it a joke about the Maple Leafs, people yeah, would be like, well, we've had not... 40 years of those jokes, so let's move on to something new. <laughs> I think the other interesting thing about this environment, though, is we have seen into the homes of our people in a way that we've never seen before. True. That we learn a lot. Yeah, well, that's exactly right. Because, you know, certainly for the first six weeks of this working from home, the pandemic, there were probably a lot of individuals who were still getting into a three-piece suit to come on a Zoom call. Six months later, they're like, oh, bugger that. I'm in my hoodie and I don't yeah. care if you can see my dog in the background or my wife. Or the lamp that Mark's stolen in the back there. Hey, exactly. hey. From exactly. The, is you from the office. You weren't using it yeah, in the office. Okay. It's fine. But the point being is as difficult as much of this transition has been, we've also had this wonderful lens into the humanity of, of our people. And if you're lucky, the humanity of our leaders. They're not just the guy at the top of the table with the really expensive suit. It's the guy that you've now seen behind him has a photograph of his family. You might even have seen his family in the background of a Zoom meeting. And I think that breaking down of barriers, that's something that I think we should celebrate. Yeah, that's a good part. But by the same token, that lack of serendipity and uh, spontaneity, that's probably on the negative side of the ledger. That's uh, so well said. That's why you're the pro. <laughs> so we had you on. So we're doing the rabbit hole five. It used to be the rabbit five, which are ra- rapid five. Rapid yeah, fire. And then they, they never worked. But now it's going to have to be a little more rapid because I'm seeing the time ticking here. Uh, so let's do the rapid hole five. <laughs> First question. If this is so cheesy, I'm sorry to do this. Yeah, but anyway, if you could rename yourself with two awesome brands, so from Hilton Barber to two other brands, what would it be? Come on. Southwest Seasons. <laughs> <laughs> That's the best That's you're going to get. Awesome. There we go. Mark, you're up. Number two. Come on. All right. If you could have a long lunch with any, of the, any, any corporate leader or leader that, that you really want to have a chat with, who would that be? Living or dead? Thank you for that clarification. So I would love to have lunch with Izzy Sharp of the Four Seasons and Herb Keller, the founder of Southwest Airlines. You may be detecting a theme in these answers. Yes. Why are they? What's the theme? They're not alive. (laughs) (laughs) They're the best. They're the best. Oh, because you named yourself after them. Now I get it. Yes. There we go. Okay. So you've been, you know, coaching and working with a range of clients over the years and giving them all your great insights and advice. But who's the ones gotten back to you and thanked you for something that you said? And what was it that you said to them or gave advice on that they appreciated and remembered? That's an excellent question. I don't have a rapid fire answer for. Not to say that there haven't been a lot of grateful people and just decent souls that have um, expressed gratitude. Um a client out west several years ago did say, I appreciate you reframing this definition of culture. And not to say that they were all about the kumbaya and the foosball tables, but I think there was certainly at, at the time, uh, this is several years ago now, 
there was still very much a how do we align our strategy and culture versus a you know a culture is an important thing but I don't see why it has such a business impact. But you know, being able to close that gap for them um, was great, and for them to absorb that and take that on, I think was really pleasing and wonderful for me. Awesome, Mark, number four. So, fellow South African alum Elon Musk, you know, is he is he repping South Africa in a certain way? Like the the, the brilliant intelligence, obviously, that's one trademark. Devilishly handsome. Is- Sorry, you forgot that part as well. Yes, sorry, that slipped. Um, but is there any other thing? That, I mean, is he doing things well? Is there something that's very South African about him? Like, what is it? Like, is there anything, anything there that we can glean? Well, look, Elon Musk does nothing that that's not entirely one hundred percent about Elon Musk. You know, so let's let's be absolutely clear on that. I mean, anybody who pumps doggy coin and then turns around and says, "I wonder how how I've been able to increase the valuation of Tesla." By having us buy a bunch of Bitcoin while I'm individually pumping Bitcoin as the future of life on planet Earth. So, again, look, he's deft, he's intelligent, uh, he's remarkable. Is he reminiscent of every South African that I've met? Well, there's certainly the arrogance. (laughs) That is quite a deep component of people from my country. Um, But, hey, it's not always a bad thing. No. No, not at all. And number five, this this question we actually do as a repeat. This is the recurring question. So number five is, uh, and it's a shortcut to getting advice from my eldest child, mm. which is if you were to give the Hilton Barber at 17 years old advice today, what would that be? Don't go anywhere near tequila. <laughs> <laughs> That is probably the wisest one we've ever had. All these other ones are like deep thoughts. Yeah, trust in yourself. Uh, you know, like, take a leap. No, you're just like other. avoid yeah. the tequila. If I had a dollar for every time that tequila was my kryptonite, I'd, I'd be dialing this in from my, you know, my lodge in Bali with my private yacht, you know, parked outside. So, no, look, you know, for your 17 year old, absolutely life lesson number one: avoid the tequila. Life lesson number two. Avoid the scantily dressed waitress offering you tequila. So again, context is another important part. But yeah, I you know if if we if we're being pithy and putting things on t-shirts, then absolutely believe in yourself. Find something that you're good at. Find something that you can make money at, and lean into it. And I suppose the very last part is never lose your curiosity. That's a very curious comment to make at the end. <laughs> avoid the tequila avoid the tequila <laughs> the most important speaking of which i gotta bring in t- on tiktok last night sorry I'm, I'm speaking of rabbit holes i don't know if you've been swiping the old tiktok but it is this funny there's this woman first thing in the morning she's drinking her tea and she's, i think she's british and the husband's like what type of tea are you drinking she goes tequila <laughs> welcome to pandemic life People drinking all the time. Anyway, look, Hilton, that time, those insights, everything you've been sharing, first of all, super well articulated. You can tell you've put a lot of time and research and thought into this. Uh, you should be writing more books. I think you, uh, you're you on to something here, bro. Thank you, mate. Listen, this is a passion for me, as I hope anyone listening to this could uh, take away. I, I do think if, if there's been a moment in time where our humanity has been under more pressure individually, collectively than this, I don't know what it is. It's certainly nothing in living memory. But to think that we have environments that we call companies and organizations where we have forgotten our humanity, that I think is a, is a desperate loss. And for any leader listening to this, it doesn't take a moment's pause and go, while we're all getting literally punched in the face by this pandemic, what can I do inside my organization to create a place where humanity has a chance, where everybody who brings their talent to me and to this company can thrive and feel special and feel human? 
that should be something you lean into. That's something you should, as a leader, commit to. That's what you can do to help bring humanity back to all of us. And on top of it, we're not living in through the normal human interactions. So that's even more the reason, too. Wow. Thank you, man. Mark, any parting thoughts on your smart front? No, that was good. That was awesome, man. That's all I got. That's as eloquent as I'm going to be. <laughs> it was fantastic, man. Uh, well, listen, thank you. Thank you both. And saying, you know, all BS aside, mate, and, and going back to over a decade that you and I have known each other. Thank you for doing this. Thank you for putting these together. Thank you for giving me an opportunity and others to to bring some mojo. That's your humanity. That's, you know, the fact that you're wearing the, a speedo while you're doing that, I think this highlights your humanity in spades. But um, just keeping the mojo up on my end. That's all. That amen. sounds wrong. We should edit that part out. Keeping. <laughs> <laughs> amen, brother. Listen, thank you both. Mark, a delight to meet you. Thank, thank you for being brand consistent, brother. Big Take love care. from Toronto. Hugs to the family. Bye. That was awesome. And, you know, it's really interesting is obviously I know Hilton and we've crossed paths and we've had long, great conversations. And obviously I knew he was he's, his whole things around corporate culture. But talking about it now during the pandemic period is even more meaningful. Like you're, you're kind of like, ah, oh, now I get it. Because it, you, you need that sort of like strong corporate identity or just corporate culture culture period to to sustain what you are as a as as a group through the pandemic it's it's incredibly important and it's given me pause like what are all the things i'm not doing we're not doing uh i'm a little like oh shit better put some thoughts into that hey it's interesting because you know in our office vibe that sort of thing we do every week to get feedback from the team there's a bit of a lull and i i actually was kind of Okay, but what else can we do? Is it just because it's February, it's winter, this pandemic's going on, and I've there's data out there showing that because the vaccine is promising and coming, people are actually getting more angsty. And, and I'm like, so where's the line between it's our responsibility as, say, leaders in the business versus it's just people's lives and they got to just... It's societal. It's been a year of this. They see the, the end in sight. It's been winter. It's all that stuff. So we're going to have to figure that one out. Hey, uh, so look, thank you, Mark. Thank you, everyone that, on the team that makes this happen. And thank you to Chris Vallon for making the music sound so and sweet. most of all, thank you, Hilton Barber. That was oh, fantastic. yes, well, of course. we got to thank our guests. We'll have to have him back on once uh, once a kind of normality has, has resumed. Yes, and we'll rename him. What is it? Southwest? Uh... Southwest Seasons. So there we go. Okay, ciao. Ciao.